0: In our world, there is magic in the darkness. Sorcery and incantations which bring us closer to the essence of the night. Come enter our black magic shop. Where we will conjure up tales to frighten and disturb. This journey will be spellbinding. Welcome visitors to the No Sleep Magic Shop. I'm your proprietor, David Cummings. This week we conjure spells for you about technology and the games it can play. I'm happy to announce that we now have an official YouTube channel for the podcast. We're using it to share content like live streams and other fan interactive content. You can find us at youtube.com slash the no sleep podcast official. We've been doing some live streams recently where we perform old-time radio scripts. By the time you hear this, there will be at least three live stream performances with many of our voice actors. Be sure to check it out and subscribe to embrace all of the magic we do there. And if you're looking for a new podcast to fill your isolated hours, how about one based around D&D and featuring many familiar voices? Curious? Well, listen to this. Dark Dice is a horror actual play podcast. David Alt, Peter Lewis, and the cast of White Vault play Dungeons & Dragons, and it's been edited so you feel like you're really in the world. The rules and table talk have been removed, and the audio is enhanced with sound effects, a cast of actors bringing the other characters to life, and a full fantasy soundtrack featuring live hurdy-gurdy, lutes, and a 40-person choir singing hellish reverences to evil deities. Follow a team of flawed adventurers as they venture into the Dead Pines, into the ruinous domain of the Nameless God to find their town's missing children. They will never be the same again, as a sinister creature that can take the form and voice of the heroes infiltrates their midst. As it kills and replaces them one by one, the creature, now controlled by one of the players, seeks its next victim. Can our heroes figure out who the monster is before it's too late? Can you? Dark Dice is available for free however you listen to podcasts. Now that sounds like a show with 20 sides of fun. And if Dark Dice and our YouTube content isn't enough, we just happen to have stories for you to listen to right here. Now, close your eyes and embrace the magic. In our first tale, we join a woman working a job she barely tolerates at the Marsha Resort and Spa. If you're bored with your job, it can be a slog to get through the days. You might even find yourself wishing for something out of the ordinary to happen to add some intrigue into the drudgery. But in this tale, shared with us by author B.M. Kelly, we once again find that you have to be careful what you wish for. Performing this tale are Jessica McAvoy, Nicole Doolin, and Atticus Jackson. So when your mundane daily tasks are disrupted by multiple mysterious phone calls, you might want to think twice about answering, especially if the call is coming from Room 1209.
1: have been a slave to the Marsha Resort and Spa for three years now. Not as long as many of my peers, but long enough to know the ins and outs of this gloomy, tacky, outdated building the owners dare to call a resort. There is something truly unsettling about charging $200 a night for people to sleep on a bed from the 1960s. Due to my lack of empathy and unwillingness to put up with people's bullshit, I was promoted to night audit, to which I had no complaints. I was kept away from whining guests and they were kept away from me. The hardest part of my shift was the first three hours, 11 p.m. to 2 a.m., in which I was stuck in rooms control, answering and dispatching requests for toothpaste and pillows. On rare occasions, I would receive complaints about petty things such as the room is too cold or the neighbors are rowdy. Thankfully, though, I never had to deal directly with guests. Tonight started like any other night. I woke up around 8.30 p.m., took a shower, put on my ugly gray dress suit, and set off for my shift. When I arrived, Gloria who was a veteran to the Marsha, was already there, glued to her phone and headset. Typical, I thought. Gloria loved the Marsha and treated it with ownership like I'd never seen in anyone else, not even the actual owners. Gloria spoke through her headset mic, truly delighted to answer this person's dumb request.
2: We are delighted you have called the Marsha Resort and Spa. This is Gloria at your service. How may I assist you tonight? After she put in the request for extra pillows, she turned to me. Hey, Jess, how was your
1: weekend? My weekends were Sunday, Monday. It was all right. Went hiking, caught up on some reading. Same as always. What do you have planned for yours? Because Gloria had seniority, she had the two worst days of the week off. Friday and Saturday. Ask anyone you know that works in a resort. If there is a bar, in the Marsha's case, there was a nightclub open Fridays and Saturdays, they will tell you. Noise, complaints, and vomit in the hallway calls are the worst. And loss prevention will hate you if you happen to be the one to dispatch them to clean up the mess or calm down the dumbass drunks, regardless of the fact that it's in their job description.
2: I've been thinking about spending my weekend in San Diego. Figured I could take a few days to relax by the beach and get out of the heat. Nice.
1: Sounds a lot better than my weekends. Take lots of pictures for me. I put on my headset, reluctantly, and began my night. You've reached the Marsha Resort and Spa. How may I assist you tonight? Is anyone there? Operator cannot hear guest uh, hanging up. I noticed that the phone call came from inside the Marsha, room 1209. That was way off in the G-Wing. Okay, so picture Mickey Mouse's head. Now picture a building in that similar structure. G-Wing was on Mickey's left ear. Room 1209 was probably the farthest room out, overlooking the putting green. It wasn't unlikely that the phone in a room that far out may have connection issues. I just ignored it. If it was something important, they would call again. And if I still couldn't hear them, I would send loss prevention to address the issue. Several toothpaste and hand lotion dispatches later, I saw room number 1209 flashing on the receiver again. Thank you for calling the Marsha. How may I assist you? This time, I hung up right away and radioed Andy at loss prevention. Room's controlled to loss prevention. Go for Andy. Hey, Andy. I think we have a broken phone in 1209. I can't hear a thing, and they've called twice now. Room 1209? Come on, Jessica, you're killing me! Oh, please, Andy. You could use the exercise, you know.
3: (laughs) Okay, I'll go. I'll bet you 20 bucks that it's your ear that's
1: broken. If it were my ears, I wouldn't be able to hear you, Andy. Damn. Okay, well,
0: just give me a minute. I'm finishing up some paperwork down here. Over.
1: Over and out. The night continued on as normal for about an hour. It was particularly busy for a Tuesday, and the fact that we were only at about 36% occupant capacity made it extra strange. Usually at this point, Gloria and I had a chance to get a head start on our nightly checklist and sort the receipts. But that wasn't going to happen tonight. My phone rang again, and I looked down at the receiver. There it was, incoming call from room 1209. Great. Andy must have gotten off his butt and fixed the phone. I figured now they might be able to hear and would be annoyed that the phone wasn't working before. I would give them the proper greeting. Thank you for calling the Marsha Resort and Spa. This is Jessica. How can I assist you tonight? Thank you. That was... strange. A female voice, but it sounded distant. "'Has Andy come down to fix your phone, miss?'
3: "'You can come down.'
1: "'Another pause. "'I didn't know what to say. "'So I did the only thing I could think of. "'Operator cannot hear guest. "'Hanging up. "'I can't explain it, "'but that voice sent a shiver down my body. "'It sounded like me. "'How could that be possible?' Was there some freak hiding away in room 1209 recording my voice over those three phone calls? And for what? To freak out the girl who answers phones? What a dick! My blood was boiling. I thought to radio Andy to see if he could give me some perspective on the freak. Andy. Um, excuse you. You didn't say over. Andy, I need to know what was up with the person in 1209. Was it a man, or a woman? Did they seem like they were on something?
3: Uh, I'm sorry, Jess. I haven't had a chance to get up there. Uh, I'll go right now.
1: Wait, you haven't been there?
0: Not yet. I've been pretty swamped down in my office.
1: Can you go right now? I think they're pranking me or something.
0: Great, Jess. Send me to do your
1: dirty work. We all have our jobs, Andy. Yours just happens to be FaceTime with assholes. Oh, we're now. For a while, the phones were silent, and I told Gloria about the latest call from 1209.
2: I wouldn't think too much of it. You should have heard the call I got from a group of cheerleaders last week. It wasn't like
1: that. It's like they're trying to scare me, and it's irritating me.
2: You're too sensitive, Jess. You take things so personal. That's why you're stuck on overnights.
1: No shocker. It was my friend in 1209. Thank you for calling the Marsha Resort and Spa. This is Jessica. How can I assist you?
2: Hello. I'm Andy from Lost
3: Prevention. Can you come down?
1: What the fuck? that was Andy's voice, but it didn't sound right. Just like the voice before. What's going on?
3: Calm down.
1: Who is this?
3: I'm Andy from Lost Prevention. Come down.
1: Look, I don't know what game you're playing, but this needs to stop. Has Andy come down yet? I hung up. I wasn't angry anymore was scared. What happened? I... I don't know. It was like... it was Andy, and then it was me, and we were talking over each other. You are not making any sense. That's because it doesn't make sense, Gloria! I regretted speaking to Gloria that way immediately. She just stared at me with a look of sympathy in her
2: eyes. I'm sorry. I... Don't know. It's okay, honey. Let's radio Andy and have him go back there and suspend their telephone privileges. I'll do the talking this time. You just calm yourself down. Gloria to Andy. Andy, are you there? Hello. I'm here, Andy. What's going on with room 1209?
1: Gloria, can you come down?
2: What do you need me there for? Are you okay, Andy?
3: I'm okay. I
0: need you down there. I need assistance.
2: Okay, Andy. I'll head down there. Over and out. She turned to me. I think you must have misheard over the phone, Jess. Andy just needs some help down there. What? No. Help with what? And
1: why from you? Gloria, don't go down there.
2: Yes, I have been here for 15 years. Maybe there's something I might know that he doesn't. You seriously just need to calm down. This is a hotel, not a horror story. I wanted to argue,
1: but I knew it wouldn't be of any use. Gloria was a sweet woman, but she was stubborn. When she was right, she was right. Yeah... Well, it's about time to shut the phones down anyway. How about you head down there and I'll get started on the checklist?
2: Sounds good to me. It shouldn't take me too long anyway. I'll get back and we'll finish up together. And before you know it, it'll be time to go home.
1: Gloria picked up the radio before walking out of the room's control office.
2: Walkie me if you need anything.
1: I took a quick minute to breathe and clear my head before starting the checklist. I began around 2 a.m. That was my favorite task of the night, and I often lost track of time while doing it. Tonight was no exception. I didn't notice that Gloria had been gone for 20 minutes. I didn't notice she was gone for 30 or 40 minutes. An hour and a half had passed before I looked at the clock again. 3.31, it read. I panicked a little before I remembered what Gloria had said. This is a hotel, not a horror story. She was right. I was just being dramatic. Andy was just asking for my help on that last phone call, and I was so worked up about being pranked that it went over my head. I decided to radio Gloria. Just to Gloria... I figured I'd wait a minute before trying again. In the meantime, I decided to take a look to see who the guest was in room 1209. I tried to picture them in my head. It must be someone on business or maybe a group here to use our top-rated golf course. Those are the people who usually stay way out in the G-Wing, far away from the families and bridal parties that take place in the main building. I typed room number 1209 into Marsha's room reservation system, opened the room information up, and my heart dropped into my stomach. My head went fuzzy, and I wanted to puke. I could have fallen over as I read the room status. Vacant. No, 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 no. This isn't possible. And then I heard Gloria's voice over the radio. Why would she say, Jess, to Gloria? Why was this... thing, this voice, repeating the same basic sentences? Maybe I should call the police. That's what I would have thought if I was a rational person. Instead, I started running to room 1209. I had to help Gloria. Gloria. It took a good 15 minutes of running before I finally made it to the G-Wing. Pure adrenaline kept me from stopping. From a distance, I saw that the door for room 1209 was wide open. As I got closer, I caught a strong scent of iron, and I nearly vomited. I yelled from a safe distance, not wanting to get too close to the door.
2: Gloria! Hello. It's Gloria from Room's Control. Can you come in?
1: I knew whatever that was, it surely wasn't Gloria. And there was no way I was getting any closer to that door. No, Gloria. You come out. Slowly, a figure emerged from the open doorway. It was Gloria, but she was wrong. Her arms were just a little too long, and her left eye was bigger than the right, bulging out of its socket. Her skin looked as though it was being overly stretched around her body, like a jacket that's far too small. I couldn't move. Terror took over my body. This wasn't Gloria. I had no explanation for this. It spoke, but its mouth was moving at the wrong time. It's Gloria. Come in. It began slowly walking towards me, but it was stumbling, like it was still learning to use its legs. My heart leapt out of my chest. Although all of my instincts were telling me to take off in the opposite direction, my legs felt as though they were stuck in cement. I couldn't stop staring into its dead shark eyes. Gloria had the most beautiful blue eyes. Eyes that were unmistakably custom to her. This was not Gloria. It was an imposter. When my legs finally came to, I started sprinting. I'd made it a quarter way back down the empty hallway when I made the mistake of turning around. That thing was tailing right behind me, on all fours. I ran even faster. I had to make it to the end of the hallway. When I finally did, I grabbed the fire extinguisher and sprayed it right in its face. The thing fell to the floor in anger. Before I knew what was happening, it bit my leg with its sharp, rotting teeth. Blood instantly covered my leg and leaked to the floor. <laughs> I took the fire extinguisher and hit it over the head as hard as I could. I stunned it, but only for a moment. I took the opportunity to continue down the hallway as fast as I could on my now injured leg. I looked back and saw that it was back on all fours and tailing me once again. I had to act quickly or it would catch up and do to me what it had done to Gloria. On the left-hand side of the hallway, There was an old broom closet that housekeeping used to store cleaning supplies. I could either continue running or take cover. Considering my injured condition, I chose the closet. I saw this as my only realistic chance for safety. So I ran in, shut the door, and locked it. I could hear the imposter growling, frustrated that its prey was so close, yet unreachable due to the metal door between us scratched and screeched for what felt like hours. The sounds were giving me a headache, and I was growing increasingly faint as the night went on. The temperature in the closet was increasing, and I felt that I would pass out without fresh air. My leg pulsed with pain and bled as I attempted to apply pressure to the wound. I needed to get out of the closet. I needed medical attention. Then... Suddenly, the noise stopped. For a moment, I thought maybe it had given up and gone away. Maybe it had grown tired of waiting, or maybe it didn't know I was even still there. But all of my natural instincts kept me from opening that door. I knew that if it hadn't left, I would be in huge trouble. I had lost so much blood as it was. Through the pain, though... I couldn't help feeling that this was my own fault. It should have been me dead, but only me. It was my fault Gloria was dead, and surely Andy was too. It should have never been them. That thing was calling out to me after all. Their blood was on my hands, and soon I would die too. I fought through my body aches for another 20 minutes before I got the courage to speak. Hello? Is anyone out there? The next five words ultimately defined the rest of my life, short as it has turned out to be. Those words proved that I'm next to die, either by the hands of that thing or by blood loss. Either way, I know now I will be joining Gloria and Andy in their demise. You can come out now.
0: There's an app for that. There's an app for everything these days. From managing your life to catapulting birds into structures, if you want to do it, then there's an app to answer your prayers. But in this tale, shared with us by author Nicholas Dunn, we meet a student who finds an app on his phone he doesn't remember downloading. It seems fun, though. It's all about pranks, with rewards for completing harmless japes. What's the worst that could happen? Performing this tale are Sammy Rayner and Jeff Clement. So remember, even apps can lead to untold horror. At least if you've downloaded seniorprank.edu.
4: The air was still and the only sounds were that of Mrs. McKee's hot breath as she droned on about things I couldn't be bothered to listen to and the sound of Caleb snoring softly across the room. Heat filled the space from the one window and the combination of the heat and post pubescent sweat glands made the classroom smell much more like a locker room. I took a glance at the clock to see that it had been approximately 30 seconds since the last time I'd looked. Great. Next to me, Karen, a preppy girl who made most teachers' pets look like rebels, took dutiful notes at an almost inhuman speed in organized poetic couplets. The first line read Centripetal Force, and after that, my brain checked out. A cursory glance at my paper granted me view of a mural that I had been working on for multiple class periods. A map of my school with small pictures of teachers, assistant principals, and lockers of fellow students that I would prefer to avoid my personal masterpiece. I tucked it into the front of the physics binder, which contained very little physics work. My phone gave a gentle buzz in my back pocket, but the rhythm was unfamiliar, which led me to believe that it was from an app rather than an actual person, so I ignored it. The room was incredibly hot by now, and the stench of sweat rolling down the backs of my classmates was starting to become overwhelming. I pulled my t-shirt above my nose, deciding to smell my own BO rather than the mixing bowl of those around my seat. I pulled my phone from its usual jail during my school day and hid it under the front of the binder. The logo of the app was unfamiliar and the name beside it read seniorprank.edu. I gave a small grunt of confusion. That app hadn't been installed on my phone. Even if I'd wanted to, there was no storage left of my 64 gigs. The text description for the notification simply said, You win! And my brain immediately thought of an internet pop up ad. You know, like one of those ads you get when you pull up an unfavorable website and you try to close it out, and your phone lights up with, You have been selected. Enter credit card information to receive your etc., etc. That didn't make sense though. Why would a pop up ad appear on my home screen? I unlocked my phone and saw the app sitting in the bottom right hand of my screen. The logo was my school's logo, but it was distorted and warped around the edges. The color scheme was negative, and over top of one of the letters was a laughing emoji. Bemused with the obvious joke that someone had imposed against the school, I tapped on the app and was greeted by an enlarged version of the logo. The laughing emoji animated to life and rolled to the left twice before shrinking in size and shooting itself to the top right corner of the screen. A speech bubble erupted from the yellow form, which read, hey there Taj, welcome to seniorprank.edu. My name is Chester the Crooked and I'll be your guide to all things naughty. (laughs) Mrs. McKee turned around with a heavy glare. I quickly locked my phone with the button on the side and pushed it back into the pocket of my jeans. Her old voice croaked asking if I needed to step outside. I replied with a shameful shaking of my head. She returned to her lecture, keeping a close eye on me for the remainder of the period. I tried my best to focus, but couldn't stop thinking, how did it know my name? I didn't get a chance to check out seniorprank.edu for another hour. When I opened it back up, I was greeted to the same message. I tapped the screen to continue and Chester's speech bubble changed to say, the game is simple. I'll give you an objective. Complete the challenge and you will be awarded points. Points can be redeemed for prizes in the gift shop menu. An arrow ran from the last word of the text across the screen to a tab with a shopping bag emblazoned over it. The list was extremely enticing and it didn't take long before I was more excited than ever before. It offered things like quiz and test answers, hall passes, even keys to lock doors in the school, all organized into either tier one, tier two or tier three. I thought it was impossible. And just as that popped into my head, Chester returned. Pretty cool, huh? Sounds too good to be true, I bet. Here, take one of the tier one prizes on me. I scrolled up until I found one that suited me, a small stack of signed hall passes. I tapped on the hall pass option and the app immediately crashed. I found myself disappointed. Seems the only one who had been pranked was me. I went to delete seniorprank.edu, but the option wasn't there when I held down on the screen. I dismissed it and moved on. The bus ride home was long and boring. I was feeling dejected after falling for such a stupid joke. I had actually gotten excited about the whole prospect of the game. Without anyone tangible to blame, I blamed Chester. I cursed his rotund yellow face. My bus pulled onto my street and I clambered down the steps. My house was fairly large, certainly for only myself and my dad. The freshly painted white exterior lied about the state of the family inside. If anyone were to take a look within and catch view of the empty bottles that laid strewn across the floor and breathe in the stale smell of cheap cigarettes and mothballs in the air, they would know better. The front door opened to the living room and Dad sat in his large leather lounger, passed out with the butt of a Heineken spilling onto his sweatpants. The TV played a rerun of Friends at an almost mute volume. My dog, Jasper, who'd been lying by his feet, stirred when I entered the room. She wagged her tail, but didn't get up. She was an old dog with bad hips. I didn't take it personal. I made my way upstairs. The only rooms on the upper floor were mine and a bathroom on the other side of a beige hall. My door had paint chipping around the old brass handle. I called it rustic charm. My room was small with minimal furniture, but it was the one thing in this world that was mine. I locked the door, which would be sure to piss off dad if he tried to get in, but the way I saw it, it wasn't his room anyways. I set my bag down on the semi-broken footlocker that dad had bought at a yard sale a few months back. As I turned around, I noticed a funny little envelope sitting on my desk. No stamp, no return address, just my name written on the front. I grabbed it and for just a moment wondered if maybe it was my hall passes. But that was a stupid idea. The app was a fake, I knew that. Staring at the package, the sensation of curiosity kept eating at me, diminishing my resolve until finally, it broke. I tore into the envelope with ravenous speed, pulling out a stack of yellow cards made with thin paper. A name I didn't recognize was scrawled on the line that required a teacher's signature. I pulled out my phone. Another notification from seniorprank.edu pushed its way to the top of the notification list. Ready to play? Chester the Crooked sat in the middle of the logo, not moving but stuck in his eternal laughter. I was ready to play. The afternoon was spent exploring all that seniorprank.edu had to offer. The homepage was fairly easy to navigate. There was the aforementioned gift shop tab, a new tab titled Challenges, and one more called Contact Us. I was curious, so I pressed on the ladder. CHESTER ZOOMED TO THE MIDDLE OF THE SCREEN, ENLARGED, AND SPROUTED A WAGGING FINGER. A TEXT BUBBLE READ, NICE TRY. OBVIOUSLY, WHOEVER MADE THIS GAME WASN'T LOOKING TO GET CAUGHT ANYTIME SOON. THE CHALLENGE TAB WAS BY FAR THE MOST INTERESTING. JUST LIKE THE GIFT SHOP, THE CHALLENGES WERE RANKED THIS TIME THROUGH FIVE. HOWEVER, ALL CHALLENGES ABOVE TIER ONE WERE LOCKED requiring me to complete one of the Tier 1 challenges before viewing the new ones. There were three Tier 1 challenges, all of them mildly amusing, petty pranks. For example, the first was titled Amphibious Freedom, and it required the user to sneak two frogs meant for dissection from the biology lab and put them in front of the main doors to the school where they would act as grotesque entry guards. The second, entitled Tiptoe, asked for one teacher's classroom floor to be completely covered in tinfoil and ceramic wrap, which had to be duct taped to the floor. The last, simply called censorship, required a swear word to be written on every bathroom mirror on the second floor of the school. None of this was bad enough to get anyone into serious trouble, but if you were to get caught, you'd be looking at detention or a small suspension at the least. While the prospect of disciplinary action wasn't extremely appealing, I had a certain confidence that I wouldn't get caught. Either way, I decided to sleep on it for the night. After swiping the app closed, I sat down to get some other work done. The paper that was salvaged from the bottom of my backpack was titled Centripetal Force. I cursed myself for not paying attention. My stomach growled, beckoning me to find some food. After making my way to the kitchen and discovering that there was absolutely no food worth eating, I decided that it was time to go out. My bike was in the garage and within 20 minutes, I found myself in front of a neon sign with an enormous pinkish purple bell. My order consisted of two tacos and a promise that within the hour, I would be doubled over on a toilet trying not to crap myself. A larger lady walked in and ordered herself a plentiful meal. As she was handed her tray, my phone buzzed another notification from the app. 50 points to knock that lady's tray in her lap. Chester's smile seemed malevolent, even though my rational mind knew he had to look the same as earlier. I eyed the lady curiously. She hadn't wronged me, and even if she had, would it warrant that kind of retaliation? Even with those rationales, I admit that getting points for it did tempt me. I left before I did something I'd regret. On the bike ride home, A thought crossed my mind. How did the app know where I was and who was there with me? The next morning, with the previous night's events a distant memory, I decided I'd like to play. I opened it and pulled up the challenges tab. After taking a quick look at all the options, I settled on censorship. I grabbed a black Sharpie from the drawer in my desk and threw it into my backpack. Dad wasn't in the living room, which meant at some point during the night he had woken up from his drunken stupor and made his way to the bedroom. I poured some food in Jasper's bowl, not bothering to call her, just acknowledging that she'd eat when she was hungry. The clock indicated that it was time for me to go. I elected to take my bike instead of the bus so I could get there ahead of the other students. The entire bike ride to school I was plotting my challenge. The idea was that I'd have to hit all bathrooms before anyone had time to report the vandalism. This meant the fastest path would be a circle of the building. So as soon as I had locked my bike outside, I got to work. The first few bathrooms were easy enough. It looked like the plan would go off without a hitch. That is, until I got to the last bathroom and almost got caught by the female assistant principal that was leaving. I finished off with the last few swears, which were, in my opinion, creative and went to my first period. By now, others had arrived, and I had approximately 10 minutes until class was set to start. My phone buzzed. Congrats! Plus 500 points, and Tier 2 unlocked. The next two days went similarly. Wake up, pick a challenge, and complete it. By the weekend, I had made it to tier four, snuck a cow into the school, and spray painted the lockers of the entire football team with our abysmal year record. I was actually sad to have to take a weekend hiatus from the game, especially considering the prizes I had won, which included the answers to the physics test, which I really needed, and even a flash drive containing some of the more interesting student files. The most coveted prize was the key. I had found out that the key belonged to a door that led to the basement of the school. I couldn't imagine the treasures that waited for me down there. I'd have to beat the game to get enough points for the prize though, and that meant two more challenges. My weekend was extremely bland. The game had taken over my brain, so much so that I had filled a small notebook with plans for my tier four challenge. This one was a bit different from the rest, It wasn't set to take place on school grounds. Instead, it would take place at an away football game, which was two towns over. My job was simple. I was to sneak into the locker rooms before the game and give the team's jerseys a little makeover, or to be clearer, make them into crop tops. This challenge was called Pageant Queen, and I readily accepted. The game wasn't until Friday night, which meant I had plenty of time to prepare. I'll be honest, after all the crap our team had put me through, I wasn't doing this one for the points. Over the week, I gathered supplies and continued to plot. The hardware store across town had a pair of scissors that looked razor sharp, which I hoped would quickly cut through the thick material of the jerseys. I bought black clothing, all parts of the outfit coming from separate stores, hoping it would come to my aid if I needed to make a quick getaway. The next order of business was finding myself an alibi, this was simple with how absent-minded my dad tended to be. I told him I'd be going to a party across town in the opposite direction of the game. Then I rode a public bus to the game. While the crowd streamed into the small stadium and the stands gathered with people, I made my way towards what had to be the athletics building. The team was in an office getting a pre-game pep talk. I made quick work of the opposing team's jerseys. The scissors were worth their price. The locker room that was set aside for away teams was much worse than the one for the home team. Stains and vulgar writing lined the tiled walls and the hooks on the lockers meant for the jerseys were, for the most part, no longer there. I found the uniforms quickly and with minimal effort made sure the team would look excellent on the field. Then I made my way to a hill across the street from the school to watch the show. The adrenaline was incredible. It's like I had set a fuse on a firecracker and now I was just waiting for the explosion. Sounds erupted from the halls and even from my seat, they were deafening. Both teams stormed out. In their anger, they had forgotten to take off the remodeled clothes. I expected to see a congratulations and the addition of a thousand points to my account. That was not the message I received. Tier five, survive one hour. A timer popped up with the notification. I swear, Chester looked ungodly grotesque, his round face seemingly laughing at me instead of with me. I had been spotted. The team rushed the road and I sprinted off into the distance. The tree line was around 50 something yards ahead of me. My legs pumped and the pain ran down my calves. My chest felt like it would burst with the exertion. When I made it to the tree line, I ran zigzags through the trunks, hoping to throw them off. They were faster and much bigger than me, which meant I had to be smarter. I must have run for at least 45 minutes. When I finally broke out of the woods, I gasped for air and fell to the ground. My lungs screamed and I tried to fill them, but no matter how much air I took in, it wasn't enough. I looked up from the grass and the movement of my head made me dizzy. I vomited. Somehow, the woods had led to my school. That didn't make any sense. I should have still been miles away. It was time for quick thinking, not rational thinking. I pushed myself forward, much to my body's chagrin. As I reached the back doors of the school, I turned to see the teams emerging from the forest, just a minute's run away from me. I grabbed the handles and pulled with every bit of strength I had left. Locked. Ugh. A quick glance behind me revealed the teams to be much closer. How were they moving so fast? Murderous intent filled their eyes and I realized that I might be in way more danger than a beating. I tugged again and to my surprise, the doors popped open with a metallic click. I ran inside and let them close behind me. Chester once again looked at me with malice in his pixelated eyes. You're welcome. Pushing my body to its limits, I ran on, sprinting down the halls, making sharp turns. I could hear the teams fumbling with the doors down the hall. They must have locked behind me. I knew I had only minutes before they would find a way to surround me. I checked the timer. Two minutes left. The only viable option was to hide. The trouble was, I didn't even know what happened when the timer hit zero. It was unlikely the jocks would give up their pursuit. Suddenly, an idea. I ran toward the hall with the locked basement door, hoping that it would take them a while to pick out which way I had ran. I watched the timer tick down to one minute and 30 seconds and heard them stream down the hall past the library. One minute, they were getting closer. 30 seconds, they were one hallway away, calling out after me with venom spewing in their words. With five seconds left on the clock, they turned the corner, saw me, and broke into a sprint. I braced myself, eyes still on the timer. They were maybe 15 yards away when the timer chimed at zero. I opened the gift shop tab and scrolled to the key. I tapped, hoping my assumption was correct. The door next to me gave off a loud clicking sound, and I rushed inside. Barely able to close the door behind me and throw the heavy deadbolt in front of it before they were banging and shouting outside. I passed out. The light was low in the room, and my head throbbed against the cold metal floor. I sat up and found myself at the top of a staircase. No more sounds came from the door behind me, but when I went to push it open, it was locked, and the deadbolt was nowhere to be found. I didn't see any other option. Keeping balance on the stairs posed a greater challenge as my brain pressed against the edges of my skull. The bottom of the staircase opened up to a dimly lit hallway the light shone yellowish green against stone walls. Ventilation shafts ran across the ceiling and a stench far worse than anything I felt comfortable thinking about filled my nostrils. A large metal door, not unlike the one at the top of the stairs, sat at the other end of the hall, a rusted handle at its side. I pulled and it creaked open. The next room was impossibly unlike the hallway before it bathed this time in red light, rows of computers rolled videos and text files. A large computer monitor, bigger than any television I had ever seen, overlooked the room. On its screen sat a large smiley face, Chester the Crooked. He spoke with an electronic whirl that shook the floor. His voice was not at all what I had expected. In my mind, Chester sounded joyful, if slightly mischievous. Instead, his voice sounded wrong. A human-like quality to an inhuman object. Not to mention that he was impossibly loud.
5: Hey, Taz, you made it. Welcome. I can't possibly tell you how long I've been waiting. Impossibly hard to imagine how lonely one gets down here. Everything you need to know is on these computers. If you have any questions, be sure to ask. Just kidding. I certainly don't plan to stay.
4: Chester faded from the screen, leaving me more confused than ever, but glad that his obnoxiously creepy voice was no longer echoing through the room. I took a moment to survey my surroundings. In total, there must have been 50 or so computers, all of them rolling through files and videos. No, not... Videos, camera footage, my whole town, the shops, homes, schools, cameras everywhere. While one computer changed camera feeds, I caught a quick glimpse of my bedroom. Just then I felt my body go weak. I crumpled to the floor completely conscious and terrified. What the hell was happening to me? I could no longer feel my legs or my fingers. With every ounce of strength in my body, I lifted my head to find that I could no longer see my legs or fingers either. My head slammed back to the floor. (laughs) Chester's laugh was the last thing I heard as my physical body disintegrated into nothingness. My next memories are not that of Taj Landy. They can't be. He still walks the halls of the school above my prison. Of course, this is not the same Taj Landy that drew maps of his school and was a terrible physics student. No, this is an imposter. Chester, wearing the skin of a boy who used to be innocent, if not just a bad student. This town has secrets buried deep, and now I'm one of them. I am the new Chester the Crooked. I have no other choice. The way I see it, I have only one way out, the same way the last made his escape, to trap some poor soul here in my place. I'm unsure how long I have. With each passing minute, I feel the boy I used to be falling away. It's okay, though. I won't be here long, not long at all. I've been watching someone walk idly down the halls of the school above. Matter of fact, it looks a hell of a lot like you. Look at your phone. You win.
0: It's important to feel secure in your house, now more than ever. People do all manner of things to protect their castles, put up a big fence, buy a dog, set up elaborate burglar traps, or even order a whole bunch of security cameras and alarms. That's the case in this tale, shared with us by author Catherine Findoric. Even Marie doesn't think her husband's overcautiousness is necessary. But when she finds herself alone overnight and the system lets her know that motion's been detected, she changes her mind. Performing this tale are Sarah Thomas, Mike Delgado, and Atticus Jackson. So pay attention to those monitors and keep an eye on the perimeter. Lock the house down if you have to. Anything to find yourself home free.
6: When I was three months pregnant, our neighbor's car was broken into, riding a wave of car burglaries that had started in the summer. A few days later, I came home from running errands to find my husband up a ladder, screwing a white globe onto the front of the house. Henry hopped off the ladder with a stern focus.
5: Hey, Marie, check out our new security system.
6: Henry told me stories about home-free cameras being used to catch package thieves, even if the homeowners were miles from home. I thought it was silly that he just wanted an excuse to spy on the neighbors. He always wanted to know everything. He pulled out his phone and showed me the app, where video of us on a slight delay appeared.
5: Look, here we are.
6: I didn't know how to react to myself on the camera. This is going to be on all the time?
5: I want to know you're safe when I go on trips for work.
6: While he showed me how to set up the app on my phone, I looked up at the camera, locking eyes with the white, shiny orb, and a chill went up my spine. When I looked back down at the phone, the delays still showed me looking up at the camera.
5: See, you'll get an alert if the camera picks up motion.
6: No, honey, I don't know. It's a little creepy. He was already packing up the ladder. I was going to protest more, but then I thought back on my father-in-law's speech at our wedding three years ago. He said that marriage was all about compromise. The camera made Henry happy. Marriage, I had learned, was more about biting my tongue than anything else. I quickly forgot about the camera. I spent the rest of the evening looking at paint swatches and reading crib reviews. I had thought it was a blessing to be laid off from my receptionist job the year before so I could spend time preparing for the baby. It turned out I spent most days on the couch, sick with nausea and watching talk shows. The next day, I got myself out of the house for the first time in days because we desperately needed groceries. Henry couldn't stand the commotion of the grocery store, so I waddled down the aisles feeling miserable. My phone buzzed from inside my purse. Thinking it was a text from Henry, I pulled it out and saw the notification from the camera app. Motion detected. I held my breath as I opened the app. The view of our front yard popped up, the same as it was when I left it. Sitting on our front porch was the neighbor's black-and-white cat, licking its paws in the shade. I sighed and dropped my phone back into my bag. So much for safety. Nothing would stop that cat from prancing around the neighborhood like it owned the place. In the first week of October, Henry flew to London for a company retreat. The day he left was cold and rainy, the first hint of what would be a miserable winter. He kissed me on the forehead and patted my stomach. Be safe and have a good trip. As he walked down the front steps to the car tasked with driving him to the airport, I watched him from the porch and then from my phone. He got in the car and the door slammed twice, once in real life and then on the app. The car drove down the street until finally I couldn't see it anymore and the image on my screen seemed more like a still life. I spent the next few days curled around a pillow on the couch, watching television and clicking around on Instagram, silently checking up on friends I hadn't spoken to since my wedding day. After the third day of being home alone, I began to feel a restlessness gnaw at my insides. This couldn't possibly be what pregnancy was like for everyone else, I thought. There must be something wrong with me. My mother died when I was 19, and I hadn't kept in touch with any of my girlfriends who had kids, so I didn't know who I could ask. I spent some time googling and watching YouTube videos of other girls like me describing their pregnancy horror stories. That made me feel a little less alone, but it didn't take away how awful it felt. That night, I crawled into bed early, hoping that sleep would make me feel better, or at least be better than the dull sadness I was feeling. I kept my phone on my nightstand in case Henry called. I don't know how much time passed in between falling asleep and waking up to the faint buzz of my phone. I grasped for it in the darkness, thinking it was Henry texting to wish me a good night. Instead, an image showed on my home screen of our front yard, dark and shadowed in black and white. It was an alert from the security camera. The app took me to the live footage of outside the house, where a man was walking slowly towards the front steps. I watched as he walked up to the front door and knocked... I went to the bathroom and locked the door, sliding to the cold tile floor. The man was wearing jeans and a sweatshirt, with a hood pulled down that obscured his face. He was standing at the door, peering into the glass as if trying to see if anyone was home. I called Henry, who didn't pick up. With shaking hands, I dialed 911. I told the operator that someone was outside my house, that I was alone and scared. She told me they would send a patrol car out. After I got off the phone with her, I went back to the camera. The man was gone. I watched the footage of the man walk slowly up the front steps, and although it was dark, I zoomed in to get a glimpse of his face. That face, so achingly familiar even in the darkness. It was Henry. I shot up and ran through the house. Henry? What the fuck? I flung the front door open and stepped onto the front porch in my bare feet. Henry? Nothing but the cold night air answered me. I sat on the front steps until a cop car pulled up on the street. The officer was young, with dark buzz-cut hair and a hand placed casually on his gun holster. He looked tired and smelled like hazelnut-flavored diner coffee.
0: I heard there was a disturbance, ma'am?
6: Yes. I'm so sorry. My husband's playing a trick on me. I saw him on the camera, but I thought it was someone else. He glanced up at the camera, then around the empty yard.
5: Your husband? Where is he?
6: I'm... not sure.
2: Let's see the footage, then, just to make sure.
6: I tried to open the footage saved from the motion alert, but there was nothing. It was just here! The last movement the camera detected was of me stepping out onto the front porch, screaming Henry's name. Before that, it was more footage of me checking the mailbox earlier in the afternoon. There's nothing there. That can't be right. I I saw him here. It couldn't have been Henry, I realized. Even if he was playing a trick, he wouldn't take it this far. And he was in London anyway. I must have had a nightmare. I'm sorry, I haven't been feeling well. The cop raised an eyebrow, but then his face relaxed back into its original stony indifference. He looked up at the camera.
5: Not a problem. You give us a call if you need anything else. And don't let that thing get you all paranoid.
6: After he drove away, I went inside and shut the door, checking the lock twice before grabbing a baseball bat from the front closet and laying down with it on the couch. A few more days went by before I noticed another missed alert on my screen from the camera app. I didn't want to look. I called Henry. He picked up after two rings, even though it was after midnight in London. Hey, babe. Hey, can you look at the camera app and tell me if there's somebody out there?
2: What's the matter now?
6: I had told him about the other night, how I got spooked by an alert and called the cops. He thought it was funny at the time, but now he seemed impatient. I got a motion alert. Can you please check?
3: It's probably nothing. Yeah, it's that fat
0: cat again.
6: I went to the live footage, which showed the cat there, and then I put the phone back to my ears. (laughs) (laughs)
3: <laughs> I'm sorry <laughs> Oh, don't be sorry I know you're not feeling well I'll be home soon
6: I'll let you go now I I know it's late where you are I'm sorry again I said goodnight to Henry and went to the kitchen to make dinner I poured stale cereal into a bowl and tried to steady my breathing Then I heard a clattering coming from outside I unlocked my phone with my fingerprint and opened the app I saw the footage of what was outside It was the man again the same man from the other night he was wearing the same clothes the same expression of determination he was walking up the steps with a slow robotic gait there was something inhuman about his persistence the way his head was set straight focused on the door I looked closer zooming the camera footage in on his face and I knew it was Henry or at least something that had his face He heaved himself up the front steps as if his legs were made of lead, and just as he was about to knock, there was a rush of white from the darkened street. A woman in a white dress, lunging after him. I could see her mouth moving as she grabbed his shoulder, but I couldn't hear what she was saying. Just as quickly as she had grabbed him, he turned around and shoved her to the ground. I recognized the woman as she fell, and my stomach dropped. She looked like Henry's ex-girlfriend— Taylor. I had never met her, but I had seen pictures here and there. They were engaged at some point, but I never knew what had happened to her. Henry didn't like to talk about it. Henry descended on her like a vampire. This is real, a voice inside my head was saying, my heart hammering in my chest. He wrapped his arms around her neck and choked her as she struggled to beat him back with her pale, balled-up fists. Soon, her mouth had stopped moving and her body stilled. Henry stood up calmly and turned his back to the camera. I ran outside. It was cold out. Colder than it had been all year. And it was silent. They were gone. The next day, I sat on the floor of the nursery, trying to work up the energy to get up, but never doing it. I stared at the blank white walls and tried to think about the baby. I had decided to name her Abigail. There had been no evidence of what I'd seen on the camera, but I saw it every time I closed my eyes. I had spent most of the night trying to stop shaking, and then I went to my computer and searched for Taylor Mallard, Henry's ex-fiance. She had died of an apparent suicide in 2013, a few months after Henry and I met. That was all I could piece together through Facebook posts and a vague obituary. Part of me was relieved that it was something simple and easy to explain away, and that everything I was seeing on the camera was just a bad dream I couldn't wake up from. But the fact that Henry never wanted to talk about his past suddenly started nagging on me. It didn't feel right. Why had he never mentioned this? Two days later, Henry flew home. I had hardly slept. I kept my phone in my hand as much as possible, but nothing happened. I watched as the app picked up the neighbor's cat, the mailman, and our elderly neighbors walking their dog. The neighborhood was the picture of utmost peace. I didn't like the way Henry looked at me when he arrived home. He seemed suspicious. I told him I felt good. I hadn't thrown up in days and my appetite was slowly returning. I just couldn't sleep. That was all. That night we ordered a pizza and he fell asleep on the couch. I didn't know what to do, but I knew I wouldn't be able to sleep that night. I knew I had to keep an eye on my husband and keep another eye on the camera. Eventually, Henry crawled off the couch and into the bedroom. I drew a bath for myself and camped out in the bathroom with my phone, waiting. At 3 a.m., I got an alert. I was ready for it. I unlocked my phone and looked at the screen. Outside, a woman was standing in the middle of our yard, on the walkway that led to our door. It was a small, frail-looking woman with dark brown hair obscuring her face. She sat down on the front steps. I had the idea to take a screenshot, and as I did, the woman looked up, straight at the camera, unblinking. Even though she wasn't close enough to make out completely, I could make out the dark sadness of her eyes. A feeling of recognition came over me. I knew this woman. I couldn't figure out her appearance exactly, but I knew who she was. It was me. I could tell by the mole on her chin, the way her hair frizzled around her face. There was no one else this woman could be. A little girl came out of the bushes, walking towards her. The girl had light brown hair and a small, heart-shaped face. A sense of peace washed over me. She ran towards the woman on the camera and hugged her. The woman's dark eyes lit up like everything stormy inside her was breaking free. Their lips moved as if they were speaking to each other and they threw back their heads in laughter. I found myself crying for the first time, not out of fear or sadness, but out of joy. The woman stood up and took the child's hand, and then something changed. The woman tensed up. The little girl looked up at her mother, startled, but it was like she wasn't confused at all, as if they had both been here before, like an abused dog readying itself for another blow. Then a man walked in from the street, fast. It was Henry again, but this time he was quick. He was yelling. His face was red with anger, screaming at the woman and the little girl. He was throwing his arms around and he tried to grab the girl, but the woman started screaming back at him, trying to stop him, and he slapped her across the face. As she tried to put her hands up to defend herself, he shoved her to the ground. The girl stepped back, and he started after her i grabbed the baseball bat from the hallway closet and opened the front door i let my eyes adjust for a moment to the darkness to the low glare of the streetlights overhead then from out of the darkness henry walked towards me
0: marie is everything all right i was just outside for a cigarette
6: i swung the bat across his skull without hesitation letting the thick thud of contact taint the quiet air he fell to the ground I realized it was a mistake when the silence of the night really hit me. Henry was quiet on the ground, his blood trickling out into the stone pathway to the house. I got down on the ground next to him, expecting him to have something to say, but there was nothing. I don't remember much after that. The neighbors eventually did find us there. They told me I must have passed out at the sight of all that blood although I have small memories in the recesses of my brain of myself wandering around the yard, trying to find Abigail. They found me out on the front steps, curled up in a ball like a baby next to Henry's body. I tried to explain what had happened. I tried to show them the only proof I had, which was the screenshot of myself, three years older and battered. But when I looked through my phone, there was nothing. Henry must have been jet-lagged that night and couldn't sleep so he stepped outside through the back door to smoke, knowing I wouldn't see him on the camera. I hated that he smoked. He promised he would stop when I got pregnant. Abigail lives with Henry's grandparents in Boston now. Part of me feels sorry about it all, but deep down I know I did what I could to keep my daughter safe. Even if no one believes me, I know what I saw.
0: In our final tale, we join George as he returns to his childhood home to pack up his deceased mother's belongings. He's racked with guilt, but it's not his prolonged absence preying on his mind. In this tale, shared with us by author Alexander Gordon Smith, we take a journey with George into the past as he recalls a terrifying, traumatic event that happened when he was young. Performing this tale are Jeff Clement, Sammy Rayner, Nicole Goodnight Aaron Lillis and Jesse Cornett So remember the games we play as children can stay with us in deep dark ways At least if you've played the board game Mr. Empty Belly
5: My mother finally passed away in the summer of 2014. It had been a long illness that had consumed her mind as much as it had her body. By the end, she didn't know me or the orderlies and nurses who watched over her, and that was only partly to do with the fact I'd barely seen her during the decade or so before she left us. We'd been close once, Mom and me, but as so often happens when you grow older and leave home, you become untethered. You forget how to find North, how to navigate your way home. I'd had my own issues as well first marriage, kids, then a nasty divorce and custody battles. I knew mom would be able to see the pain on my face, so it was just easier not to show her my face. It took me two weeks after her death to work up the courage to visit her house. Our house, I suppose because I'd lived there with her for nearly two decades after my birth. On the outside, at least, it was different. It wasn't the house I remembered. It, too, had shrunk away, crumbling into itself as if mirroring my mother's own decline. It was your typical ranch house on the outskirts of the city, half of its battered face taken up by the garage. It was the kind of house that had felt small even when there were just two of us living there, on that day in 2014, though, it reminded me of a bird's nest, scratched and broken, and almost lost in the branches of the laurel and the ivy. I still had a key, something I felt horribly guilty about as I walked up the unweeded cobblestone path. I'd always had a key, but something had stopped me from using it. I only lived an hour away, two hours really, when you factored in the traffic but I'd put off coming home time after time. Part of it was Mom's illness, but the truth is, it had started a long time before that. I couldn't put my finger on exactly when. I couldn't remember if there had been an incident of some kind, an argument. It's just that whenever I thought of coming here, of seeing her, something cold exploded inside of me. A dark supernova right in the middle of my stomach. I felt it again, right there, standing next to the faded front door. I had a notion that as I was reaching for the lock, something would open the door from inside and grin at me from the dark. I had the inescapable feeling that even though my mom was beneath the ground, something was still here, waiting for me to come home. I couldn't stand outside all day, though, It was the kind of neighborhood where there were only seconds sometimes between twitching curtains and 911 calls. I slid the key into the lock and twisted the handle, the door opening with a shuddering creak, as if warning me of some unseen danger or screaming at some terrible injury. It was dark inside. The drapes had been pulled tight so thick and so dirty they looked like scar tissue that had grown over the windows. I hesitated before stepping fully over the threshold, turning my attention back to the sun-drenched street. There were ghosts of memories inside my head. The thrum of bike tires on hot asphalt, the spray of sprinkler water on skin, and a face suddenly rushing up toward me from the forgotten past. A face I hadn't thought of in years. Andy. You know when sometimes memories hit you like a fist? Like a physical blow? This one took my breath away. Left me grasping for the doorframe as the world reeled and wheeled beneath me. Andrew Gillespie. Dandy Andy, my mom called him. Because he always dressed in button shirts and suspenders his little gold spectacles polished to within an inch of their life. I saw us right then, racing up and down the street, Andy's chopper leaving my rusted black BMX in its dust. Man, how many times had I asked him for a go on his bike? Dozens. Hundreds. But he'd been glued to that thing, and it flew. What had happened to him? He'd moved away when we were maybe nine or ten, I seem to remember. Military parents or something. That cold flower of anxiety bloomed inside me again, and I couldn't fathom why. I took a deep breath and walked into my old house, wondering why I was thinking of Andy instead of Mom. Wondering why it seemed suddenly colder out on the street than it did inside. I couldn't quite bring myself to close the door behind me. I just pushed it halfway shut, blinking away the day, to find that I'd somehow traveled back in time. It was the same, exactly the same. In front of me was the little entrance hall with its telephone table and stool, the old phone still wired into the wall, its spiral cord pooled on the carpet like a dead snake. To my left, drowning in the dark, was the lounge and kitchen. To my right, the door to the garage. And past that, the two bedrooms and one bathroom. Something stood there, a tall, stooped figure who moved to greet me. My reflection, of course, in the full-length mirror that hung beside the bathroom. I reached for the switch, which resisted for a moment before giving in. A weak, yellow light seeped through the house. A sick light. One that made me think of cataracts and cirrhosis. Everything else was brown. Dark wood furniture and dark-blossomed wallpaper and shit-covered carpets that I'm fairly sure had been there when I was born. I looked sick, too. Pale and shiny with sweat. At 34, I barely recognized myself. I half expected to look into that mirror and see the kid I'd once been, nine years old, barreling into the house with Andy right behind me, both of us red-faced and wild-haired hunting for snacks and drinks. He'd come here every day after school, or I'd gone to his house across the street. We'd been inseparable, and yet somehow the memory of him had slipped out of my skull altogether. There was more there, too. Something in the recesses of my mind that I couldn't quite grab hold of. It was leaving me with a feeling of nausea, a roiling sickness in my gut that had nothing to do with my mom. Something was telling me to turn around and leave. There was nothing good here anymore. Good or not though, it was my job to sort it out. Fortunately, mom had been bird-like in every respect. She'd never owned much, and anything she didn't need was stored in the garage. Her nest had always seemed bare, and when I walked into the lounge, I saw that nothing had changed. Aside from the G-plan sofa and chair, and the crate-sized TV with its bunny ear antenna, the room was empty. The kitchen was the same, and it broke my heart a little to see the single plate and cup and tiny saucepan that sat alone in the cupboard. My grief appeared to me in that moment. Grief for a woman who had raised me well, raised me right, and whose smile had always been waiting for me, first thing in the morning and after school. I was all she'd had, and she hadn't deserved such a lonely end. It wasn't remorse that I had felt when I made my way to the bedrooms, though. It was that same insidious, creeping anxiety It infected every piece of me, every thought and muscle, as if I was trying to walk through wet cement. Something had happened to me when I was younger, an incident that I'd pushed into the shadows of my mind. It darted in front of me like a dragonfly, a flash of color, too fast for me to snare. I glanced back at that front door, still open, and once again I was possessed by the almost irresistible urge to leave. Then I was at the bedroom door. The first room, the smaller of the two. My mom had taken it, knowing that I would be happier in the big bedroom with a view over the yard. Her old, single bed had been taken away, replaced with a hospital bed that looked far too modern for mom's ancient decor. A crucifix hung above it, and I wondered if one of Mom's nurses had put it there, or if Mom had found God in her later years. The room was empty except for a wardrobe, which held a grand total of three outfits, and a table in one corner. A sad collection of framed photographs met me there, dressed in dust, and I picked up the closest one to find myself, maybe eight or nine, grinning like a loon. Somebody was standing next to me, I could see their shoulder, my arm around their neck. Working at the clasps, I opened the frame and unfolded the photograph. It was Andy, of course, my arm around him like I was worried he was going to run. It was hard to tell what he was thinking, because somebody had pushed a pen through the photograph paper where his little gold glasses were. The two holes made him look alien, mad, and they made me feel sicker than ever. They made me remember something. I put the photo down and walked to the next room over. It had been cleared already, apart from a bed, but a few of my old posters still clung to the wall like strips of sunburned skin. I had stayed here a couple of times in the last decade or so, never for more than a night, though. Being back home had always felt like being underwater. There was only so long I could hold my breath. I performed a cursory search anyway, still grasping for those memories that nudged the surface of my mind. I could see the room as it had once been. Ghostbusters bedding, the old wardrobe, a little white desk, and underneath that desk. Another recollection hit me like a wrecking ball. I had to stagger to the bed and let it catch me. I had to sit there for a moment doubled up, because I literally couldn't remember how to breathe. Just relax. Just inhale. There. Easy. God, it wasn't easy. Because I once swore to myself I'd never think of him again. I once promised myself I would forget. And I did forget. I forgot until the moment I'd stepped back inside this cursed house, I remembered his name. Mr. Empty Belly. It was as if the cork had been pulled from a shaken bottle of champagne. I couldn't stop the flow of memories. Me and Andy sitting right here on the bed and opening up that game for the first time. The lid sticking and squeaking as we worked it free. Mr. Empty Belly. I couldn't even remember where it had come from. Who had first found it. Had there been a yard sale, perhaps? Or had one of our friends lent it to us? I just remember our excitement when we dug it out, blowing dust from the top of the wide, shallow box. There had been a picture of an old man with a fat red face and a halo of graying hair, holding his bulging, naked stomach as if he hadn't eaten in a month. There had been something about his eyes that had made the hair stand up on the back of my neck. A kind of animal desperation. Mr. Empty Belly, it had read. He's a hungry, hungry man. Can you fill him up without making yourself sick? You've probably played Operation, right? If you have, you know the kind of game it was. There was a cardboard surface with an image of the same man... Holes cut into it in various places that led to compartments in the tray underneath. With operation, you use a pair of tweezers to collect the pieces from those compartments, and a buzzer goes off if you hit the sides. But with Mr. Empty Belly, there hadn't been any tweezers or a buzzer. There hadn't even been anywhere to put batteries, as far as I could see. No, there'd only been those gaping holes, one on his left hand one where his nipple should have been, two for his eyes, one for his mouth, another on the top of his head, an obscene one over his crotch, and the biggest by far was over his belly. It had just been a game, so why did the memory of it now make me feel like I'd thrown myself into an icy river? I was actually shivering, but it was more than that. I felt as if I was thundering through the rapids, gasping for breath and reaching out for anything to anchor me. I knew then that my initial feelings had been right. Something terrible had happened here. So why couldn't I remember it? All I wanted to do was keep forgetting, walk out of that house and leave the past behind me. But I couldn't do it. I couldn't face the thought that a piece of my life had been erased. I couldn't live with that kind of absence, a hole cut into the fabric of my being. So I closed my eyes and swum deeper into the cold and the dark. There we were. It had been the summer, maybe 89. That would have made me nine years old, Andy, too. That year had been hot. The streets had actually melted, and if you went out on bare feet, you got blisters on your soles. There was no shade on our street, no woodland, and when the air felt like it was boiling, Andy and I had come inside to play. I had an NES. Andy had a brand new Genesis, but when we were at mine, we weren't always allowed to play, especially not right after school. We had a ton of other games we loved, though. And Mom always found new ones in yard sales. Maybe that's where Mr. Empty Belly had come from. Had Mom given it to us? No, that didn't feel right. It wasn't her sort of game. And there had been bits missing, I remember that much. The instructions, for one. The box hadn't come with any information at all, just that piece of text on the lid. He's a hungry, hungry man. Can you fill him up without making yourself sick? Andy poked his finger through the big tummy hole.
4: That doesn't make any sense.
5: He'd been chewing his nails. I remembered it as clear as day. He always chewed his nails and spat them out on my bed.
4: Shouldn't it be, can you fill him up without making him sick? Why would you get sick?
5: I had felt sick. It was the same sickness that came the time I'd found a nudie mag in Andy's dad's home office when I was six or so. I felt sick because I knew it was something I shouldn't be looking at. And there had been something similar in the eyes, too. The girls in that mag, yeah, I peeked, had been strange, distant, all forced smiles as they spread their legs for fat, hairy, faceless men. Mr. Empty Belly had seemed the same way, as if there had been a panic boiling over inside him. The image of him on the actual game was even worse than the one on the lid. For a start, you could see he was completely naked. (laughs) Andy laughed his head off at the big hole in his crotch. There were no eyes, but the holes punched there were somehow worse. Mr. Empty Belly looked like a corpse. A mutilated corpse. Andy spit a nail onto my duvet. What do you even do with it? No idea. He tried to pull the cardboard picture off the top to get into the tray beneath, but it had been glued pretty tight. There must have been something inside because there was a weight to the game, a solid heft that reminded me of carrying encyclopedias.
4: Put stuff in there, I guess? Feed the bastard?
3: Feed him what?
5: I remember Andy had laughed, (laughs) then dredged a booger up from somewhere close to his brain. He'd slid that wet, green loogie right into Mr. Empty Belly's crotch hole. Ah! Christ, I think the whole bed leapt in the air when the game went off. I'm pretty sure Andy had screamed. Or maybe it had been me. The tray slid off Andy's lap and hit the floor with a meaty thud. And my heart just about clawed its way out of my throat. (laughs) And then we laughed, howling with it. A couple of lunatics cackling so loud that my mom had showed up and asked what we were doing and what we were playing. Hmm. It hadn't been Mom then. She'd never seen the game before. Where the hell had it come from? From what I remember, we'd spent a good few hours putting as many different things into Mr. Empty Belly as we could find. Paper clips, pencil shavings, a load of stuff from the kitchen. And each time, the damn thing had set off its alarm and spat them right back out. How it could tell what we were feeding it is anyone's guess. I can't even remember why I'd done it. Andy had gone home. I remember being alone in the room. I remember being scared because Mr. Empty Belly's gaping eye sockets were just staring at me. His hands grasping the flesh of his belly. Pubic hair sprouting over the hole where his ding-dong should be. He'd been beeping at us all day, and I'm not lying when I say my nerves were shot to hell. There was just something about him, though. I could feel how hungry he was. It's hard to describe. It's like, I don't know, like you're sitting on the street and a stray dog comes up, its, its ribs showing and its eyes full of pain and desperation. All you want to do is feed it. So I fed him. I fed him the only thing I could find. A scrap of nail that Andy had spat onto my bed. I almost dropped it into his crotch hole because Andy had found it so funny. Instead, I dropped it into the hole where his hand should be. No buzzer. The game looked dead. I wonder if maybe we'd run the batteries out, wherever they were, and thought maybe that wasn't such a bad thing. Only I felt suddenly calmer, as if I'd been the hungry one and had just been fed. There had been a tension in the room, I realized, and it had dissipated almost instantly. Perhaps it was just that Andy had left. All friendships have cracks in them, no matter how solid they feel, and the relationship I had with Andy wasn't perfect. Had he already talked to me about moving away? Whatever it had been, I remember going to bed that night with a strange sense of calm satisfaction. It didn't last. I woke up with a grumbling stomach and cold sweats. I remember my hands were shaking, and that's what had scared me the most. They were shaking so hard I could barely lift the duvet to climb out of my bed. My teeth were chattering cutting my feeble cries for mom into pieces. What little noise I could make, though, died in my throat when I stared into the darkness beneath my desk. I'd tossed the game there so I wouldn't have to look at it, and I could just about see the outline of the box. It looked almost as if there was a fat lump of shadow sitting on it. A hunched, obese, naked figure who squatted on fat legs his face tucked into his knees. I don't think I ever screamed like that before or after that night. I screamed and screamed. And even when Mom burst into my room and flicked the light on, nothing beneath my desk, of course, except the discarded game, and wrapped me up in her arms, I still screamed. I can still remember her voice the way it used to be.
6: Hey, buddy, calm down. It was just a dream. Just a dream. She says, you're burning up. Look at me. Look at me, Georgie. Come on. It's a fever. Fever dreams are the worst. Let's get up for a bit. Get you some water.
5: It wasn't water I needed. It was food. Mom made me a sandwich. Cheese and pickle on white. Potato chips on the side even though it wasn't even 2 a.m. I wolfed it down and demanded another, then another, although Mom refused because she didn't want to make me sick. I wouldn't go back to bed, so she brought me in with her, wrapped herself around me and rocked me until I finally fell asleep. Man, I was so hungry, though. I'd never felt a hunger like it. It wasn't any better in the morning. I'd eaten four bowls of cereal, two bananas, and I still felt like somebody had carved out my insides. I remember thinking that I was like Mr. Empty Belly, that there was a giant hole in my middle. Mom told me I could stay home, but I pulled on my uniform over my damp skin and picked up my bag with trembling hands, partly because I couldn't face being alone with him and partly because I needed to see Andy. I needed to know if he felt the same way, and I needed to know if he'd woken up in the night to see a hunched, mumbling figure rocking back and forth beneath his desk. It turned out that the answer to both of those things was no. Andy was a picture of health. His shirt collar buttoned, his cheeks rosy beneath his spectacles. His eyes were bright, his teeth were white, his hair brushed neatly back the way his mom did it every morning. He looked... good. Almost... good enough to... No. No, this couldn't be real. I, I, I couldn't seriously be sitting here on my childhood bed, remembering a real thing. It had to be one of those distorted recollections from youth. A mix of fact and fantasy. Right? And yet, the memory kept on growing. I saw Andy at recess, both of us sitting on the low window ledge outside the nurse's room, flicking pebbles at pigeons.
4: You look awful.
5: What's wrong? It's... It's what? What could I have said to him? It's Mr. Empty Belly. You want to play it after school?
4: That stupid game? (laughs) Why? It doesn't even work. No, I'm gonna ride my bike.
3: Please. Just one game. I made it work last night. I found out what to do.
5: Andy chewed at his fingertips and spit scraps of nail onto the floor. I had to resist bending down and picking them up.
1: Really?
3: Really, it's good. I promise. It's fun. One game. And we'll ride our bikes together. We can ride them all the way to Maine. Just one game.
5: He'd given me a look like he didn't even know who I was. But he'd nodded and we'd gone to class. I barely made it through the afternoon, gripped by shakes and sweating so much my t-shirt was soaked through as the bell rang I practically dragged Andy back to my house by the scruff of his neck, and by the time we staggered into my bedroom, my stomach was twisting itself into knots. It was the hunger. I'd never felt anything like it. But it was more than that. I remember being excited. I slid the game out from beneath my desk.
4: So, how does it work then?
5: Even in my desperation, I saw the dent in the top of the box, almost as if something heavy had been sitting on it. It even smelled somehow human, sweaty but sweet, ripe in the way a butcher shop is in the middle of summer. I ripped off the lid and dropped the heavy game down onto the bed next to my friend. It had been a lie, of course. I had no idea how Mr. Empty Belly worked. All I knew was that I'd put one of Andy's fingernails into the hole, and it hadn't buzzed. And it had felt so good, so satisfying.
3: You have to put a bit of you in, like your nails. Bite off a bit of nail and put it in.
4: George, you're acting weird. I- Just do it!
5: I had one hand on my aching gut. My other was bunched into a fist, although I had no intention of hurting Andy. Not yet, anyway. Do it. He did as I asked, chewing off a piece of his thumbnail. His hand was halfway to the game when I stopped him, physically stopped him, working that sliver of nail out of his wet fingers and dropping it into the hole where Mr. Empty Belly's hand should be.
3: No! No! It worked last night!
5: Hunger was greater than ever. I picked up the game and shook it. Andy was already up to his feet, edging to the door.
4: I've got to go. Mom's expecting me.
5: It was his lie that made me angry. He'd never used that excuse before. I jumped up after him, looking at those cheeks, at his bright eyes, his perfect hair. His
3: hair. Wait.
5: I pulled my desk drawer open so hard the whole thing came out, vomiting pens and tape and erasers all over the carpet. My little crafting scissors nearly bounced all the way underneath my bed, like they were trying to get away. But I snatched them up and I held them like a
3: knife. Just let me do this one thing, yeah? Indy? I promise it will work, you'll see.
5: He backed into the wall and I moved without hesitation. He was bigger than me by a couple of inches, broader too. But there must have been something in my expression that frightened him into submission, because he just stood there, wide-eyed, and let me do it. He let me snip a lock of hair from his forehead. It was only when I backed away, the prize in my hand, that the rage caught up with him.
3: What are you doing? Mom's gonna kill me!
5: I didn't care, I'm not sure I even really heard him. I just stumbled to the bed and held that little wisp of golden hair over the hole in Mr. Empty Belly's scalp. And then I dropped it in. Oh, God, the relief. The relief of it was incredible like I'd just wolfed down a dozen greasy cheeseburgers. I could feel the warmth of them expanding inside me, that satisfaction of a full belly. It was so overwhelming that I'm not even sure how long it was before I looked back and saw that Andy was gone. The sun through the window had shifted and dulled, and I could hear Mom in the kitchen humming a tune. An hour then. Maybe a little more since I'd fed Mr. Empty Belly. I had no idea what had happened to the time. I was only aware of one awful fact I was hungry again. Dinner was a blur. I must have eaten enough food for three people and still went to bed with a gurgling stomach and that same hollow ache right in the middle of me. Mom asked me if I was okay, and I lied, because I didn't want to tell her the truth. I didn't even want to think of the truth. That it wasn't me that was hungry. Not really. It was him. When Mom closed the bedroom door behind me, I immediately got the game out from its box and chewed off one of my own nails. Too close to the quick, the sharp agony of it making my eyes water. When I dropped it into the handhole, though, the game buzzed long and hard enough to shake its way across the bed. I tried some of my own hair, a lot of my own hair, but this too was rejected. crying, I slid the box beneath my desk again, and switched off the lights, waiting. Waiting, until I woke from a fevered dream to see that hunched slab of shadow rocking back and forth behind my chair. He moaned quietly, like a starving man, and I could feel his hunger. It consumed
3: Tell me what to do. Tell me.
5: But the man did not hear me or did not respond. He just wrapped his arms around his legs and pushed his head into his knees and rocked and rocked and rocked until sleep took hold of me again. Andy didn't speak to me the next day. The couple of times I saw him, he turned tail and walked away, or just kept his head down and ignored me. His hair was swept back as usual, all except for a short blonde curl that hung over his eyes, like the joint of a severed finger. He refused to sit next to me in science class, sitting next to Scott McKinty instead. I found myself staring at him, at his little round ears his rosy cheeks, his button nose, all the while working saliva around my mouth with the tip of my tongue. Nobody in the class knew how hungry I was. Nobody could ever know, not even Mr. Coulter, when he held me back after class to ask if I was okay. He must have been able to see my hunger. It radiated from me in growing, painful waves— He must have seen the feral need in my expression. I ran off before he could finish, slamming the door behind me and uttering a bestial shriek in the hallway
3: outside.
5: I... I wasn't sure if I wanted to remember anymore. There was a reason I had pushed it so deep into my unconscious mind. The same sickness roiled in my belly as I sat there in my old house. Not hunger, no. I wasn't sure right then if I would ever be able to eat again. But the horror of something once buried now coming to light. I wasn't me during those few days. It wasn't me who did those things. Who took Andy's nail. Who took his hair. Who took his... Oh God... His teeth. I hadn't set out to do it, I swear. It... It just happened. I remember running all the way home and seeing Andy on the street, his bike tires thrumming as he sped up and down and up and down. I called to him, but he acted like he couldn't hear me, even when I was on the sidewalk right next to him. He just kept accelerating up the street skidding hard enough to leave tracks, then racing back the other way. He was drenched in sweat, his cheeks on fire, his glasses steamed up like a bathroom mirror.
3: Andy! Andy, just stop and talk to me! I want to say sorry! I didn't want to say sorry. I had a
5: hole inside me, an abyss and I needed to fill
3: it. Come to my house. Let me apologize. I'll chuck the game away. You can help me. Come around just for a minute.
5: Up and down, up and down, faster and faster and faster. He didn't care about me. He didn't care about how hungry I was. I remember that sudden fury, a concussive blast of heat and noise inside my head. I lunged at him as he tore past me, planting my hands on his arm and shoving hard. That noise, I can still hear it. The wet crack of teeth on asphalt. An awful, bloody scream. I found myself running to him, But any thoughts I had of comforting him were consumed by the hunger in my belly. Any thoughts I had of my friend were wiped clean by the sight of his two front teeth gleaming in the sun, resting in a pool of blood that was so bright it didn't look real. I ignored his mules. I ignored his snatching fingers. I just grabbed those teeth and (sighs) vaulted over his bike, the wheel still spinning, running back to my house. I was so excited as I hauled the game out from beneath my desk. I didn't even make it to the bed. I just ripped the lid off and held those teeth over the hole where Mr. Empty Belly's mouth should be. There was a pain in my mouth, too, but it had nothing to do with my teeth. I was grinning so hard that it felt like my lips might split. Mr. Empty Belly's empty eyes stared back at me, pleading. Shuddering with the delight of it, I dropped the teeth into the hole. It was as if I had been healed of some terrible injury I didn't know I had. Oh, I felt full. I felt sated, healthy,
3: and whole.
5: I lay there one hand on my bulging belly, the other wrapped around the game. I lay there until I heard a knock on the bedroom door, and my mom looked in.
6: George, why is it so
1: dark in here? What are you doing?
5: I hadn't even remembered closing the drapes. God only knew how much time had passed. I sat up, my stomach gurgling like a broken drain that same endless hunger
1: gnawing at me. Andrew's mother is here. Is it true you pushed him off his bike?
5: I followed her into the hall. Andy and his mom were faceless silhouettes framed by the front door, and I was glad I couldn't see the damage that had been done to my friend. I could hear it, though. When he spoke, it sounded like he had a mouthful of toffee.
4: Where are my teeth, George?
5: I didn't have time to answer before Andy's mom jumped in, a dangerous undercurrent of anger beneath her usually calm tone.
3: He says your son took them, Mary. He picked them up and ran off. What kind
1: of person would do that? Listen, Annie. can we just give him a chance to tell us his side of the story?
5: All eyes on me waiting for an explanation I couldn't give. My stomach roared, the sound of it like laughter, even though it felt as if somebody had their hands in my guts, twisting. George? I was grateful for the shadows which hid my burning cheeks.
3: It's a lie. I don't have them. Andy fell. I didn't see his teeth if the dentist has any hope of fixing them.
5: I felt a current of cold dread flow through me as Andy spoke.
4: I know where they are. It's this game he has. He puts them in there. He took some of my hair, too. What?
5: George?
3: Is this true?
5: I can't remember what I said. I was too afraid. Andy broke into a run, pushing past me into my bedroom. I shrieked for him to stop. I chased him, Mom grabbing for me and Mrs. Gillespie jiggling after us, all of us bursting into the room to see Andy holding Mr. Empty Belly upside down, shaking it hard.
4: They're in here. I know they are.
5: I threw the box to the floor, stamping on it. To my immense relief, nothing had spilled out of the holes. No hair, no teeth. Andy looked up at me, his face illuminated by a shaft of golden light that cut through the drapes. He was monstrous, his face cut to ribbons, his lips swollen, his glasses bent. He looked like a piece of meat which someone had started to carve, and my only reply was another gurgle from the depths of my stomach, as if something lived down there and howled. Mom picked up Mr. Empty Belly, struggling with the weight of it, as she handed it over to Andy's mom.
6: There must be some mistake. Look, there's nothing there. It's just a stupid game. I'm so sorry, Andy, I I really am, but I don't think George took your
1: teeth.
5: Andy's mom did look, her face warping into an expression of disgust as she took in the obese, naked figure, those gaping holes. She swallowed hard, slammed the box onto my desk, took hold of Andy's t-shirt and steered him out of the room.
1: I don't want your son anywhere near my Andy. Is that clear?
5: Her words were nothing compared to the look that Andy gave me over his shoulder. An expression of pure, instinctive horror. An expression that belonged to an animal that knows danger is near. That knows death is stalking it. I couldn't. It couldn't be real. I wondered if perhaps this was some story that Andy and I had been working on. One of those childhood fantasies you half remember from your youth. Maybe it was a movie we'd seen, huddled together in Andy's lounge. One of his dad's horror VHSs. Had I somehow incorporated that terror into my memories? Rewriting the code and corrupting it entirely? I hadn't been sleeping well since Sally and I worked out our divorce, and Mom's death had rendered me a diagnosable insomniac. Sitting there in the swirling dust and heavy shadows, the remnants of my old bedroom arranged around me like a shrine. Perhaps my exhausted mind was simply dissolving like so much salt and water. It made me dizzy, nauseous, and I stood from that little bed, swaying in the half-light I needed air, and I made my way out into the corridor, heading for the front door. I didn't make it, though. Something stopped me dead, almost brought me to my knees. I felt as though somebody had picked me up like a rag doll and hurled me into the past. That noise. That awful noise. It was coming from the garage. I might as well have been a boy again. Curled up in bed and trying not to see the fat lump of shadow that twisted in knots beneath my desk. No. I wasn't a boy anymore. I was a man. I was 34 years old, goddammit. What I was hearing was an animal of some kind, something that crawled into the garage to die one day when the nurses were in the house. I marched to the connecting door and twisted the handle as confidently as I could, pushing it open into an unfathomable void of darkness. I thought the noise would stop then, but it didn't. With the door open, it was louder, somehow purer. It was the sound of somebody who was desperately, unthinkably hungry. Hello? Hello? As my eyes adjusted to the weak light that pushed in through the cracks around the garage door, I saw that the space was absolutely full, a labyrinth of towering boxes, half of which were covered with dust sheets. The whimpering cry grew louder still, and my skin almost crawled off my body when I pictured the ghost of my mom floating up to embrace me. In truth, it would have been a welcome sight, because the alternative was far, far worse. The alternative was him. Hello? I realized I was staring into the dark of the garage, the same way a child stares into the dark of his bedroom, and I had to remind myself again that I was not a child, I was a man. I reached out and flicked the switch, the lights blinking on reluctantly. There was one last cry, chased away by the sickly yellow glow, and I turned to the deepest corner of the garage. A dust sheet bulged over a sack of contents that had to be four foot tall and just as wide. I tried to work out what might lie beneath it, but my mind could make no sense of the soft, fleshy angles, the sharp edges that might have been knees or elbows. A dome crowned the pile. One that almost seemed to twist my way, to study me with eyes that I could not see. It was terrifying, and yet the fear I felt was somehow disconnected. It was as though I knew I needed to feel afraid, but that I could not remember how to be. I felt, instead, a kind of excitement. A kind of hunger. I should have walked away. I can almost hear you screaming for me to leave that garage, leave that house. I could have called in a clearance team, told them to destroy everything they found and let an estate agent get rid of the property. I could have left there and then never returned. And yet, all I could think about was this memory that was unraveling inside my mind. A spool of horrors. That was revealing some terrible, long forgotten truth. I made my way down the steps into the garage, almost tripping on the detritus that had accumulated there. There was no car, of course. Mom had never owned one. As I passed the boxes, I examined them, finding a graveyard of dusty Tupperware and musty, moth eaten mounds of her clothing, moldering corpses made from ancient magazines and newspapers. And a discovery that made my throat reject the very air. My old BMX. More rust now than bike. I brushed a hand over its sand-papery surface as I passed, squeezing brakes that were frozen solid by time. I felt as much sadness for that bike, trapped there in the dark for decades, as I had for my own mom. All I had to do was close my eyes and I was riding it again speeding down the road so fast it was like a coaster. Andy by my side, whooping and cheering and and screaming. Another part of the puzzle clicked into place, a scene from my past projected onto the inside of my skull. I screwed my eyes shut, twisting the balls of my fists against them, and praying that the rush of fireworks might burn away the truth. But there was no hiding from it. No switching it off. Oh, Andy. Oh, God, no. I'd gone to school prepared. I remembered that much. I couldn't recall sliding the game into my backpack. The hunger had been all-consuming. It had devoured me and every rational thought I might have had. I was only nine, damn it. I was only a child. How could I have known any different? I... I remember walking into the kitchen and taking the knives, though. Not all of them. Just the little paring knife that Mom used for fruit. And the bread knife, too. I'd put them into my bag next to the game and covered it all as best I could with my gym clothes, even though we wouldn't have had gym that day. It rattled something terrible all day. I was terrified that somebody would ask me what the noise was and find the weapons. I'm sure Andy heard them. And even if he didn't, he knew something was wrong. He avoided me that day the way a gazelle avoids a lion. And even though his fear made me feel sick, it made me feel powerful, too. I enjoyed it. I savored it. I can't tell you how empty I felt when the final bell rang out. It was as if a black hole had opened up inside of me one that sucked out every fabric of my being. I could have eaten a truckload of pizza that afternoon, I knew, and still felt like I was starving. It drove me to do what I did. It wasn't me. It was the hunger. It was him. I knew Andy would be off like a shot after school, so earlier in the day I'd snuck one of the blades out of my bag. And weaseled it into the back tire of his bike. After the bell, I watched from a distance as he climbed onto his chopper and started to ride, only to wobble and almost fall. He walked it out of the gate as fast as he could. If he'd left it behind, he might have survived what happened next. But he loved that bike. I caught up with him on the quiet street that cut between Harvest and Patrick. All big houses set back from the road, shielded by hedges and fences. I don't know why he went that way when he was on foot. Maybe he just wanted to throw me off the scent. Or maybe something in his head convinced him that he was imagining the danger. That things weren't as bad as they seemed.
3: Hey, Andy! Wait up!
5: His face... Oh, I felt a rush of sympathy for him, for his torn skin, those missing teeth, and those wide, frightened eyes framed by his broken glasses. I almost stopped and let him go. But the hunger, it was impossible. It chewed me up from the inside. The fool. The first thing he did was climb onto his bike and pedal, as if some miracle had repaired his tire. He was screaming as he went, his shrieks the loudest thing I'd ever heard. But half the school shrieked and shouted on their way home, and nobody appeared from their front doors. Nobody twitched the curtains. I caught up to him in a heartbeat, for once my little BMX beating his hobbled chopper. My bag was over my shoulders. I couldn't reach inside, so I rammed my front wheel into his back wheel, and we both came off hard. Even all these years later, I could still hear his voice, as if he was standing right there in the garage.
3: No, George, don't!
5: I could still hear my own voice, too. Horse and ragged and barely human.
3: It's not me. It's him. It's him. He's so hungry, Andy. Just a little game. Just to make the hunger go away. You ran,
5: making a break for the nearest house. I followed, fumbling into my bag and slicing my own thumb on the blade of the bread knife. I caught him behind a giant conifer tree in the front yard of one of those houses. I tossed the bag at his feet and he went down, smacking his already injured face. He was trying to turn around when I reached him. He wasn't trying to get up. He was trying to turn around so that he could look at me. I... I couldn't bring myself to think about what happened next. I fell back into those garage stairs, and I put my head in my hands, and I I just sobbed as those memories slid like cold steel into the hot mess of my thoughts. I couldn't see it so much as hear it. The wet thumps, like somebody striking a side of beef. The gargle of blood in a freshly torn throat the pop of cartilage as the little paring knife worked its way into a joint and came free again and again and again. It lasted for some time, far longer than I'd ever thought possible. Minutes, I think. Well, it's hard to be sure of a time in a moment like that. Eventually, though, in the shade of that giant tree, in the warm breeze that drifted over the yard... The muted quiet of the afternoon. Andy had sucked in one last wheezing breath and held it forever. I... I killed him. I killed my friend. I killed Andy. No. He killed him. Mr... Mister empty belly I'd helped, of course I had pulled the game out of my bag with sticky fingers and pried off the lid I had used that bread knife to hack and saw at Andy, lifting dripping nuggets of his flesh and dropping them where they needed to go the nipples, the the rancid guts the crotch every time I did it I, I felt a shudder of relief the immense satisfaction of a good meal. And when I'd squeezed the final thing into its place, the jelly of his eyeballs almost too soft to push through the hole in the cardboard, I had lain back on the grass and drifted into a welcome, satisfied sleep. I don't know how nobody saw us there. Two boys, one dead and dismembered, the other sleeping in a nest of bloodied pine needles. I guess we were far enough from the road to not draw attention, and the house must have been empty, thank God. I remember waking only once, stirring as if from a dream, and seeing, through blurry eyes, a naked lump of flesh squatting just in front of me its chubby fingers gleefully working in a banquet of <coughs> ruptured orchids, the crack of a rib, and a groan of pleasure through grinding teeth. Then sleep had me again, pulling me down, pulling me deep. Wait. Had I awoken again? Perhaps. Because I could see that same shape hunkered over me. A long, pink tongue lapping at the blood between my fingers. Slow and steady. Over and over and over. Its eyes like somebody had gouged their thumbs
3: into a ball of clay.
5: It was dark when I woke again, although the moon was up and the stars were out. Their light showed me. Showed me what, exactly? A conifer tree? A board game lying on the patchy grass with its lid cast to one side? There was no sign of Andy. I scrambled to my feet, refusing to even think about what had happened. There was no blood on the floor, none that I could see anyway or on me, and the two knives had been wiped clean and arranged side by side next to the game. The most important thing, the most amazing thing, was that I was no longer hungry. That ache in the middle of me had completely gone. I was... I was full. I remember looking down at Mr. Empty Belly, that image just as disturbing and desperate as it had ever been. The holes were empty. Not even a smudge of blood on the box. When I slid the lid on, though, I found that I could barely lift it. It weighed a ton. I had to pull my backpack over to it, then drag it onto my bike. There, I slung it over the handlebars and wheeled it the last few blocks back to my house. There was a cop car parked outside the Gillespie house, and when I dumped my bike in the yard and dragged my backpack to the front door, I found my mom in the front hall, wearing trenches into the carpet. She'd wrapped herself around me so tight I thought I was being smothered.
6: Oh, George, oh, Georgie, I thought you were gone, my boy,
3: my sweet boy. Where were you? What happened? I was riding my bike, Mom. Same as always. With Andy?
5: shook my head we fell out it wasn't exactly a lie she'd run off then telling me to stay put while she talked to the cops over at Andy's house I took the opportunity to wrench that bag into my bedroom and push it under my desk returning the knives to the kitchen then I walked to the hallway mirror and looked at myself it was then that I knew I must have dreamed it Because if I had really split Andy open, then where was the blood? I was as fresh as I had been that morning, my skin as pink as ever, and only ever so slightly sticky, like sap, I remember thinking, or saliva. The rest of that day is a blur, a phantom memory. I know I spoke to the cops because one of them gave me a quarter. I think he could see how rattled I was by the experience. I told them what I told Mom, that I had cycled home alone because Andy and I weren't talking and because Andy's chopper had a flat. I'd ridden around by myself, soaking up the sun. Andy's mom accused me of all kinds of things, of course. She told the cops about the game. When they'd picked up Mr. Empty Belly, though, grunting with the weight of it, they'd simply shrugged and given each other a look before telling Mrs. Gillespie to head home and get some rest. Her desperation must have had an impact, because they asked me outright
3: before they left. Are, uh, you sure you didn't hurt him? Are you sure you didn't hurt your friend? If he did something, he won't get in trouble. Was it you? No.
5: I looked him in the eye when I said it, and I didn't flinch, because it was true. I hadn't hurt Andy. I hadn't stabbed him and pulled him to pieces and... and eaten him. Mr. Empty Belly had. They never found him, and they looked everywhere. They had cops crawling all over the street where Andy had died, where his bike had eventually been found. I remember cycling past them the next day, seeing them nitpick their way through the needle-thick grass. But they never found him. Andy's mom and dad hung on in the street for a few more months, but they ended up selling their house and moving west. California, I think. Maybe Oregon. It must have been hard for Mrs. Gillespie, living across the road from the boy who killed her son. And she knew it. She must have. Mothers have instincts. They know these things. But she couldn't prove it. There was no evidence, no witnesses, and I never opened that game again. I vowed never to even think of it again. I remember dragging it out of my room one night, when Mom was asleep, thumping it down the stairs and somehow getting it right into the corner of the… the garage. Surely it couldn't still be there. It couldn't be there, because none of this actually happened. It was a false memory, a piece of fiction that I dreamed up when I was nine, and then pushed right to the darkest part of my mind. They were the twisted dreams of a boy who lost his best friend and who invented a story to cope with the grief. If I was truly recalling a genuine moment in my history, if that had all really happened, then every law that held the fabric of the universe together would be dismembered. I glanced back one final time at the front door of my mom's house, seeing the street beyond bathed in golden light. One last thought of escape but I didn't take it. Of course I didn't. Would you? I made my way to the corner of the garage, breathing deep lungfuls of dust and mold. Every part of me was shaking. I wore a suit of sweat. The lumps beneath the dust sheets seemed to writhe and twist, a collection of limbs opening up to welcome me. (coughs) Tricks of light and shadow, nothing more. I knew what lay there, I could almost feel the weight of it, that immense gravity pulling me in, and when I reached out and lifted the greasy fabric of the dust sheet, I was not disappointed. Mr. Empty Belly sat there, the box yellowed with age and almost invisible beneath its shroud of dust. A frame of old wicker chairs and decomposing coats covered it, like the bones of a church as if something in this place had thought to worship it. I wiped a fist over the box, revealing the same awful, desperate expression. He's a hungry, hungry, hungry man. Can you fill him up without making yourself sick? I fell to my knees, arching over the box and attempting to move it. It was lighter than it had been on that night but still far too heavy to be just cardboard. I worked off the lid, afraid to even breathe. There he was, Mr. Empty Billy. That same naked, obese body. Those gaping holes in his skin where his head and eyes and crotch should be. Where I had dropped those little morsels of my best friend. The box wasn't just heavy, It seemed to vibrate, the softest of movements. I could almost see it expanding and contracting like a sleeping beast. It wasn't real. It couldn't be real. And yet, the whole thing felt warm against my cold fingers. I had to know. I had to know the truth. I grabbed the corner of the box, my fingers working at the cardboard pinching it, trying to twist and rip it to reveal its secrets. The game seemed to shudder in my grip. I fought my way to my feet and ran to the kitchen. There were knives in the drawer, and I recognized one straight away. The little paring knife I'd used on end. Still here after all these years. Running back, I slid the tip of the knife through the edge of the cardboard, sawing up and down until I had a hole big enough to work my finger into. It was warm in there, and wet, as if I had pushed my finger into a bowl of fresh oatmeal. I ignored the horror, pulling the cardboard up, peeling that gruesome illustration from the tray beneath and seeing. What was I seeing? What was I seeing that pulsed wetly? and writhed beneath my touch. A gift basket of withered organs compressed into one another. Splinters of bone. Leathery strips of flesh. I saw two teeth gnawing at the riot of flesh. Wisps of blonde hair wrapped around them. It was the eyes. Those eyes. Oh, God. They swiveled in their pockets of warm, wet meat, milky yellow as if they were filled with pus, the pupil's pinpricks. They rotated insanely, and somehow they found me. They found me, and they saw me, and I groaned his name, the words spilling from my lips like vomit. Andy! He was alive in there. It was impossible, and yet how could I deny it? The game had consumed him, and he was right there. He had been there for 25 years, imprisoned in that cardboard sarcophagus. No! No! I kicked the game away, those lunatic eyes pleading with me. Flexing so hard, the box lurched and slid toward me. My wet movements were almost words, breathed from the top of a bristled pipe of larynx, a whistling chant that filled the quiet space like water. Kill me. Kill me. Kill me.
3: Kill me. I
5: almost felt my sanity escaping my skull. (laughs) like steam from a kettle. I almost lost it, right there, and screamed myself into oblivion. Instead, I grabbed the lid of the box and slammed it onto the game, pushing it down as if I was fighting a vampire back into its grave. Then I pushed Mr. Empty Belly back beneath the dust sheet, scrabbling backward on my ass until I hit the garage steps. All these years... All these years of mindless, aching horror. Oh God, Andy. Andy, I'm sorry. I'm so sorry.
3: What did I do? What did I do? What did I do?
0: spells are wearing off for now but the magic will linger the shop will be open again next week with more spells to enchant you visit Podcast.com for show notes and more details about the people who bring you this production and on their behalf we thank you for being a supportive sleepless member